You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I'm going to uh, kind of miss that. I'm going to miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else is going, no, I'm not. I'm, We've watched it 10 times now. <laughs> We're ready to be gone. You know, I always love it when the first freeze comes. That means my wife doesn't have to mar grass anymore. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> she gets the winter off, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. They're contentious right there for sure. <laughs> you know, this last year has been uh, busy with a lot of flying to various places, and the next year is already beginning to stack up that way. I'll be going back to Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Montana so far, uh, right after the first of the year, just uh, promoting Fearless and all those kinds of things. But this last year has been uh, a lot of flying, and one thing that I've discovered that is different from this year than really any other year that I have flown is that airplanes are crowded. You remember the day when you used to be able to get in a a, a row and you were the only one sitting there? Those days are gone because the airlines, for the most part, are are, they're canceling flights if there's not enough passengers on. Used to, they would go ahead and have the flight, but they're canceling flights if there's not enough passengers on. I was in Portland doing a conference uh, August been a couple of months ago, and I had an early Saturday afternoon flight out of Portland. I'd been there for three days. So I'd get home in the evening and be able to go to sleep and get some rest before I came to church on Sunday morning. And uh, they canceled that flight that I had set for early uh, Saturday afternoon. It gave me an evening flight with a six-hour layover in Las Vegas, Nevada. And so I got in here at like 5.30 in the morning and didn't even take a shower. And that's why he sat on the end of the booth that morning. The, the preaching desk here is what we call this. And, and uh, just, they just canceled. And I'm in Portland, and they said, well, you don't have to take this flight. You can cancel it if you want to. And I go, well, how am I going to get home? I got to do it. So you're kind, of, you're, you're, you're kind of a captive audience there. But nearly every flight I've flown this past year, every single seat has been full. Not only that, but then they also have this standby list, you know, mm. the, the list from the dreaded, hell. It's the, the standby, standby list. Yeah. It's, these are the people that don't have a ticket, but they really want to get on that flight. That's right. And so they go to the airport. They go through security. They do everything hoping to get on that flight. You know, it's funny, if you're in the, the gate area, you can always tell the difference between the ticketed passengers and the standby passengers. Because the ticketed passengers, they're reading, they're visiting, they're napping, maybe they're laying over in the corner taking a quick nap, but the standby people are nervous. Mm-hmm. And they're pacing all around, and every 10 minutes they're going up to the gate agent to say, you know, what does it look like? Does it look like I might get on this flight? Then about 10 minutes before the flight actually is scheduled to leave, they put the list of the standby passengers there, and the agent begins to call their name one by one from the top of the list all the way to the bottom. And so, you know, there's like 10 on standby. Number 10, the number 10 dude looks up there, and he sees his name is number 10 at the bottom, and he realizes, I don't have a prayer of getting on this flight. Now, that scenario that I just illustrated, because I'm a preacher, I make everything about something that has to do with a message or, right. you know, something spiritual. Right. Um, 
That scenario illustrates the difference between people who have assurance of their salvation in Christ and those who don't. You see, if you, can believe, if you believe you can lose your salvation, then what are you, you're always flying standby. I mean, you're always, you're, your name is on the standby list, and, and you know that, that, you know, you're far enough down the list that you may not get on. And so all the time, you're thinking, you know, if I had just done one more good deed, you know, <laughs> if I'd just done one more good thing, I wouldn't be on this standby list. I'd be a ticketed passenger. Or maybe if I just hadn't done that one thing, I'd, you know, 1985, I remember, oh, that was a bad decision, then I would have been moved up on the list and even maybe be confirmed for the flight. Because the truth of the matter is, folks, some people believe that God is like Santa. He's making his list and he's checking it twice. Mm. He's going to find out that all of us are naughty from birth. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> people were just not that great, okay? I mean, the truth of the matter is. But you see, that mindset is so contrary to what the Word of God says that the Heavenly Father wants us to have in a relationship with Him. And so the Scripture completely debunks that whole mindset, yet people still carry it. Because what the Scripture says is you receive salvation by faith, by grace through faith. And so you receive your salvation as an act of the grace of God and it is by grace of God that we keep it as well. It's all about grace. And so those who are in Christ, genuinely having been born again through faith in Christ, are not, never on standby, but we are the ticketed passengers, if you will, with a seat that is secured. Now, interestingly enough, we've been 10 weeks now in the book of Jude. We've been 25 verses. We've been doing about two, two and a half verses a week. And we come to the very end of this 10 weeks later, and Jude closes out this little letter that he's written to these Christ followers with a very encouraging message. It's incredible. Some of Jude has been pretty, pretty dark. It's been oh, yeah. pretty tough because he's talking about these false prophets. He's talking about these people that have crept in. They're trying to lure people away. But he closes in these last two verses, verse 24 and 25, with an incredibly encouraging message for those who are Christ followers, those who are in Christ. And he says that we are protected and we are saved and we are secure. Mm. Read with me verse 24 and 25. Mm. Now he closes this letter. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. And then he tacks a good old Baptist amen mm. on the end of it. Mm. I love that. You amen. know, it was uh, uh, E.V. Hill that used to talk about when the Bible says amen, amen, it really means show enough, show enough. Okay? And so Jude ends his letter with a show enough, okay? I mean, this is for sure. This is for certain. And, and because he says we are protected. Now, in the last two verses, he talks about three ways or three reasons how we are protected when we come into faith in Christ of never being able to fear that we are going to be bumped off of the flight for some reason, either of our own or of someone else. Mm. And the first protection we have, he says, is we are protected by his power. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 begins by, for he is able, 
things. He, being God, he is able to keep you from slumbering, from stumbling. Now that, not from slumbering, you're going to slumber in church sometimes, but from stumbling. The key, the key phrase of this text right here is that he is able, that God is able. What's he able to do? He says, well, he's able to keep you from stumbling or from falling. <laughs> that is Got to be the, the, the most hellfire and brimstone. What's that? God will never allow you to sleep again. <laughs> That's that right. just sounds yeah. like a Boy, horrible. That would, that would be horrible, horrible. You sinner. What? Stay awake. <laughs> Stay awake. <laughs> To keep you from falling. Falling from what? Well, in the context of Jude's letter, obviously that's all he's been talking about is our salvation in Christ. And so it's obvious he's talking that God is able to keep you from falling from salvation. He's talking about, he's ending this letter up with our security, a message of encouragement, our security in Christ. Now, as I said a moment ago, Throughout this little letter, he's been warning about deceivers. Last week, we talked about how he said to these Christ followers that, that sharing Christ is an act of mercy, that we are to share Christ, we're to show mercy. Yeah. And he mentioned those three groups. He says, show mercy to those who are doubting. <clears throat> In other words, answer their questions. Others that are further along, he says, show mercy by snatching them from the fire. I mean, they're headed down that road to perdition. And he says, snatch them from the fire. And he says, even those who have gone so far that their lifestyle is repulsive to you, he says, show mercy to them, share Christ, but watch out for yourself. So everyone who is in need of the gospel, it's an act of mercy on our parts to share Christ with them. So after saying that, he turns to verse 24. He says, but God is able to keep you, all these people that we're to show mercy on, God is able to keep you from stumbling or from falling. Now, I love the fact that the emphasis upon, is put upon his ability. Who is able to keep us from falling out of salvation? Are we able? <laughs> no. The ability is not mine. I can't. Only he can do it. So here's the truth. Here's the big idea. When you are genuinely saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, you can never again be lost. Don't let anybody ever fool you with that. Now, why is that true? That's the question. Because I am able to keep my salvation? No, because he is able to keep me. My security in my salvation is not about my pride. It's not about how what a wonderful person I am, although I'm not all that bad a guy. I mean, look at this, what I'm next to. So, you know, I mean, it has nothing to do with me. Hey, I, I want to say, not to interrupt you, but I wore this shirt today because... Because I ragged on you last because week. Because you ragged you, on me. Because you dressed nasty. When, when James Reeves gives me fashion tips. You know you're in trouble. That tells me I am. You know you're in deep, deep trouble. I'm off the deep end. So and I'm, I'm the man in black today. You're the man in black. Wearing a t-shirt. At least my shoes are tied. Unreal. So my security of salvation has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with him. I love the, the way that Jesus approached the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, 28. They were asking him for mercy. And so Jesus asked them this question. Well, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able? Now, that is a big question, is it? That's a $64,000 question. Do you believe that I am able? You see, all through the Scripture, everything about our security is not about our ability, but his ability. We are not able, but 
He is able. Mm. Romans chapter 4, verse 21, Paul reminds us of Abraham. And he says of Abraham that Abraham was fully convinced that God was what? Able. Able. He was able to do what he had promised to Abraham. Abraham looks at this thing, that this challenge God had given me. He goes, man, this is way above my pay grade. This is out of my hands. But he was convinced that though he was not able, God was able. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not that he may bring it to completion. Not that I hope he will bring it to completion. But I'm convinced that he's going to finish what he started in you unto the day of completion. He was convinced. Here's the question. Are you? Hmm. That's, the, that's the big question. That's the question that comes, brings rubber right down to the road. Are you? I could go on and on and on for hours reading Scripture that speaks about how God is able. So if my security in Christ was based on my own ability, then I'd have no security because it would be based on how well I did each day. And some days are diamonds and some days are coal. Stones. Come on, folks. That's a song, okay? It should be. If it's not, I'd have no security. But since my security in Christ is not based upon my ability, it is based upon His, I can have security. Now, what that releases me to do is not to go out and live the way I want to. No, because I have a new nature in Christ. What that releases me to do is to stop trying and start trusting to start per- stop performing and start praising him, to stop acting and start adoring him, to stop wandering and working and start worshiping him. And that's what he wants us to do. You know, some believe, they do believe, good people do believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, Jude would certainly argue with that. And the term that is used for that is falling from grace. How many of you have heard that? Well, you can fall from grace. You know, that in itself is a contradictory theological and biblical statement, to fall from grace. Because grace means a gift. An undeserved one. It means an undeserved gift. It means a gift you didn't do anything to get. And if you didn't do anything to get it, then how can you fall from it? I mean, he saved us while we were yet sinners, the Scripture says, okay? He, 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 did, he gave us the gift when we didn't deserve it. And so to say we fall from grace, well, what do you got to do for the gift to be taken away? Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, We are justified by grace as a gift through our own strength. <laughs> our own self-determination. No. It says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to satiate his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This is all about grace. So to fall from grace would mean to fall from God's gift that I didn't get from the beginning because of anything about me. And so God would have to say, you know what? I know I gave you that gift, but I'm taking it back. (laughs) You didn't deserve it. When I gave it, now you really don't deserve it, so I want it back. Huh? Think with me for just a moment. Then I'm going to turn the rest of it over to Derek because he's going to dig deep. All of the things that God would have to undo 
For, it, for you as a genuine born-again believer in Christ Jesus, by grace through faith, to be lost. All the things that God would have to undo. Now, this is, these are all the things that Scripture says that he does when you come to Christ. So if you could fall out of Christ, then that means he'd have to undo all of the things that he did that the Scripture says when you came to Christ. Colossians 2.13 says that you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. We were dead, he made us alive. John 3, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about spiritual birth. So what would God have to do if I was lost? Well, he'd say, well, you know, I'm going to make this one dead again. <laughs> this one was once alive, but now I'm declaring, nope, dead again. God would have to say, unborn him. Unborn him. It's not good English, but it's good theology. It is. It's actually horrible theology. Yeah, it's actually all right. <laughs> but you get my point. Ephesians 4.32, it says that God in Christ forgave you. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about he forgave you when you came to Christ, everything. He forgave you of the sin nature, the Adamic nature we talk about, theological circles. He forgave that for you to be lost. He'd have to say, sorry, I forgave your sin nature in Adam. Now I'm taking it back. I'm unforgiving you. You know, I'm just, just going to make a declaration. You're not forgiven anymore. Sorry. Headed for hell. Thanks for trying. Back on standby. Back on standby. Back and forth, back and forth. Got a ticket. No, I don't. Stand by. Got a ticket. No, I don't. Mm -mm. Loves me today. Loves me not. It's ridiculous. When you look at all the imagery of what Scripture says, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So God would have to say, okay, uncrucify him. He's no longer crucified with me. And by the way, I'm no longer living in him. I'm moving out, breaking the lease. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified means to be declared not guilty. It's a legal declaration of the sovereign God. So if I was to lose salvation, God would say, I'm reversing my verdict. I know I declared legally justified in Christ by faith, but now I'm reversing that verdict. I know I said not guilty, but now I'm declaring he's guilty again. Wow, that's double jeopardy, triple jeopardy, quadruple jeopardy. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, that is a powerful verse. Mm. Two things it says about us that happen about our salvation. First of all, we are predestined to become adopted children, and that is God's eternal purpose. That's the purpose of his will. So two things God would have to do. First of all, he would have to reverse his predetermined will. Okay, because it says he predestined us to adopt us. All the, word, all of the word of God says that God's will is perfect and never changes. He would have to go back on that, his predestined will. Second of all, he would have to unadopt us. He would have to say, I adopted this boy, now you take him back. To the world, the world being the adoption agency. Okay, I've had him here for a couple of years, but he's just, I, I don't want him anymore. Just send him back. He's no longer my child. Mm. Are you getting this? Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
sealed. That means ownership. It means, man, sealed with the power of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God would say, I know I sealed him with my seal of ownership, but remove my seal. I'm reversing the ownership. He's no longer mine. I mean, I could go on and on and on because the Bible is filled with all these images of what God does for us in salvation. Therefore, he would have to reverse every single one of us if he allowed us to lose the salvation that he's given to us by grace. Are you, are you tracking here? So, he ends this letter, even though they're surrounded by all these people that are living in such a way and trying to draw them aside. He says, he says but look, God is able to keep you from falling. He's able to keep you from stumbling. My salvation eternally is not in my hands. It is in his. Hmm. The second. Let me just say that for those of you who you hear the term the gospel and, and you're like, well, what is that? What James just laid out is the gospel. That you are unworthy and incapable of doing anything to gain God's favor, love, forgiveness, justification, all the things he just said, and yet in your worst state, God did all those things for you. How much worse are you going to get to have to lose it? That is the promise of the gospel, that it's not up to you, that yeah. despite what this culture and what this world wants you to think, that you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and and just give it another go and dig deep and have self-determination and, and be your best self. There is no such thing as your best self. <laughs> if you're just being honest. Well, you know, Paul said there's no good thing that dwells in me. There's nothing. Save Christ himself. Right. He's the only good thing that dwells in me. And so what a burden to be removed off of you to hear the good news that it's not up to you. Amen. It's up to Jesus. That'll preach. I, I love that. That that is. I've never heard anyone reverse that. I've read a lot of books, and I have never heard anyone reverse those things in that way. That's it. It, it is. It's absurd to think that you could lose your salvation when you when you unpack it that way. And there's about 20 more illustrations in Scripture of what God does in salvation that He would have to reverse. Just so good. So good. So we're protected by His power. Secondly, we're protected by His purpose. In other words, God will not allow anything to happen to you that is in opposition to his purpose for you. Now, the big question on the table, of course, is, what is God's purpose for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is God's purpose for me? I mean, this is a question that I suspect every person in this room has had or at least thought about at some point. And Jude answers it here in the latter part of verse 24. He says, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, mm. to present you blameless before himself. Now, I want to unpack this. There's a lot here. Let's start with the word blameless. What does it mean to be blameless before God? This is a word, uh, amiantos in Greek. It's, it's a word that means unstained or undefiled, without blemish. And there's two different contexts that we see this word being used in very regularly. The first one is uh, in the context of the requirement of sacrifice. So this is language used to describe the quality of the uh, thing being sacrificed to God. In order to be a sacrifice that is acceptable to the Lord, it has to be unblemished, blameless, 
In other words, perfect. If it was a lamb, it couldn't have a flop ear. It couldn't have a flop ear. It had to be a perfect, an unblemished lamb. Exodus 29.1, the people of God are told to take one young bull and two rams without blemish. Uh, Of course, there's several other passages through Leviticus, Deuteronomy that, that repeat the same exact terminology. But what we come to find out is that animal sacrifice is simply not enough to get the job done. It just simply pushes God's wrath back about a year. And then you have to come back and do it again. And then you have to come back and do it again. And then you have to come back and do it again. And so the people of God are looking to this time when the perfect and final sacrifice will be laid down where they will not just have atonement, which is this pushing back, but what the New Testament calls propitiation, a final, done, no more debt, all the things that James just talked about, actually justified, forgiven, so on and so forth. And of course, we know that the New Testament tells us that sacrifice was none other than Jesus. Jesus. Right. Hebrews, That's the Sunday school answer. Sunday school right answer. If you use that. You, you just throw it out there 90% of the time. It works every time. So Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, here it is, without blemish to God, amiantos, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see this with regard to the requirement of sacrifice. The, the sacrifice has to be perfect. But we also see it in another context, which is the result of sanctification. So sanctification is a word that we use to describe a process that the New Testament talks about where God is shaping you to be more like Jesus. The process of becoming more like Christ. And we see the same term in this context as well. Ephesians 1.14 Paul says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, and here it is, without blemish in his sight. So look at, the, look at the beauty of what the New Testament is laying out here. That Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, lays himself down, presents himself without blemish before the Father, and that act begins a process in us that will eventually lead us to become like him without blemish. Isn't that amazing? So the purpose of God is to present us one day without blemish, blameless before himself. The question becomes, how? How does he do that? How does that work? Romans 8.28 through 30 speaks to this. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So check this out. Jude says, God is going to one day present you blameless before himself, we ask, how is he going to do that? He's going to sovereignly work together all things in your life for good. And so I want to break this down because there's a lot here. And I want you to follow me so you can understand because this is one of those things that I think people have a hard time wrapping their, their heads around, rightfully so. It's a, it's a big concept. But when you understand this, it, it just makes life look a lot different, okay? Paul is talking to those who love God. That's us, the church Christians, And he says that for Christians, for you, it is not that only good things are going to happen in your life. We know that is not the case. Every day is not a Friday, as the guy from Houston says, right? (laughs) It, It is, there are going to be bad things that are going to happen. So it's not that only good things will happen. It's that all things that happen, whether good or bad, are somehow sovereignly worked together for good. That even the worst things have this silver lining. That even the worst things that happen have some potential for good. And good, not according to what I think is good, not according to what I consider good, 
but all things are going to work together for good according to his purpose. Now, what is his purpose? Verse 29, Uh, Paul tells us that you would be conformed to the image of his son. To present you blameless. To present you blameless. He is saying the same thing Jude is saying, that you would be presented blameless, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That is God's purpose for you. Now, here's what this means, and this is huge, and I want you to just pause for a minute and think about this, that every single thing that will happen in your life, both good and bad, has the potential to make you more like Christ. I've had people for 40 years coming to me and say, I don't know what God's up to my life. And I go, well, I do. (laughs) Well, well, tell me. He's making you like Jesus. He's making you like Jesus. That's all he cares about. All these things that you're worrying about, they're subservient to his his eternal purpose. His purpose. He's he's using all things to make us like Jesus. Nothing will thwart it. Twelve years ago when I could no longer see out of two eyes, from a human perspective, it's bad. But you would not believe the good things that God has done in my life in the 12 years because now I now have one eye. Absolutely. That I wouldn't have planned and I would have not have been able to to put together. Every single thing that will ever happen in your life. Besides that, I'm prettier than I used to be. You are. Certainly got a lot more swag. Certainly a lot more swag with that eye I mean, the black patch goes with the black jacket. Now, listen, this is a very bold claim, and I, and I want to I walk through this. I, I imagine that some of you are walking through rather painful circumstances right now. Some of you have walked through uh, painful circumstances in the past. You might be a little skeptical of what I'm saying. You might be thinking, how could some of the bad things that have happened to me possibly make me more like Jesus? How in the world could that be true? And so I want to get very specific here for a moment and show you how this plays itself out. When, when bad things happen to you, you usually experience some kind of emotional response to it. That is a very normal and human uh, experience. When, when bad, hurtful, painful, tragic things occur, there is usually an emotional response that takes place. Now, we could spend literally the rest of the day talking about the, the litany of emotional responses. I have time for approximately two of them, okay? <laughs> uh, but I want to talk about two of maybe the more common ones uh, because they're ones that you have likely experienced or will experience at some point in your life. The first one and probably the most, uh, the most common one is anger. Uh, When something bad happens or tragic happens, it is very common for you to feel anger as a result. And that anger can be directed in a lot of of directions, right? Angry with God. Perhaps you think that God should have intervened and done something. We see this uh, when Lazarus dies in John chapter 11. When Jesus shows up and and the people are mourning the loss of Lazarus, and particularly Mary and and Martha, but even the people in the community, all in different instances in that chapter, express something like, why weren't you here, Jesus? (laughs) Right? There's a sense of anger. You could have done more. Maybe it's angry with the person who hurt you or caused whatever problem that you are experiencing. Maybe you're angry with yourself. Because you perhaps believe you could have prevented that thing from happening if only you had done X, Y, or Z. Very normal emotional response to tragedy in your life. And I want to be very upfront with you. It is never a good idea to suppress your anger. So I just want to say that out loud as your pastor give you permission to be angry when you feel anger, okay? You are not more spiritual if you suppress your anger, (laughs) That's, that is a lie. It will always find its way out of you. Just so, die of a heart attack. Yeah, exactly. You'll die of a heart attack. So if you're angry with God, be honest about that. God can handle your anger. 
He can handle your anger. If you're angry with someone else, be honest about it. There's a stigma in Christendom that somehow anger uh, makes you less of a good Christian. And so it leaves you not only with that initial hurt and that sense of anger, but now you have shame that you feel all these things to begin with. And you think to yourself, well, good Christians don't get angry like me, so I must not be a very good... Stop! (laughs) That is a lie. That is foolishness. All throughout the book of Psalms, we see what looks like very deep-seated anger. Ephesians 4.26, Paul tells us, be angry, just don't do it with sin. So the problem, hear me when I say this, is not with being angry when something bad happens. The problem is what you do with that anger, what you allow that anger to do to you. You either express it in a manner that is controlled, or you fly into Hulk mania, right? Fits of rage. The choice, that moment, becomes then a learning process by which God will begin to shape you into the image of his son and thus begin to carry out his purpose for you in your life. It's a a process that the Father will use to, to begin to mold you more and more into the image of Jesus. So, so I want you to redefine how you think about anger in your life. It is not a feeling that God is training you to never feel again. It is a feeling that God is training you to have mastery over. And that is a still monumentally tall task. But here's what it means. It means that when you get angry and you fly off the rails eight out of ten times, but maybe two out of the ten times, you have some sense of self-control. You're still angry, but you're doing something in a controlled sense with it to let it go in a healthy uh, in a healthy manner. If five years from now, you fly off the rails five out of the ten times, and five out of the ten times you have mastery, guess what? You have been conformed more to the image of Jesus. Good news. <laughs> the, New Tels- the New Testament calls this self-control, right? It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. When you have power under control. When bad things happen, God can work it together for good. How? As a training ground to grow you in self-control over a litany of feelings that are very natural and normal to feel. Are you tracking with me so far? Some of you are angry that I just said that. It's fine. It's a great moment for you to grow into conformity of Christ. I've been writing a book for Covenant Eyes, the national ministry that they're going to publish after the first of the year, and one of their vice president of business affairs has been assigned as my editor. And I told him about three weeks ago, I said, I am God's Romans 8.28 to you. Yeah. <laughs> because he'll suggest a change, and I go, why should I do that? Yeah. I don't want to do that. I like that. I don't want to do that. I, I, I like that statement. And he go, well, we can work with that a little bit. No, I don't want to work with it. And I, I called him the other day, and I said, you know what? I'm your Romans 8.28. God must really want to be doing some good stuff in your life. And he said, no, I'm yours. <laughs> he's your thorn. And he's probably right. He's probably on both right. Sides. He's probably right. So let's talk about another well-known and well-loved, adored emotional response and tragedy. How about fear? Fear is another one, very common. Now, this is how fear works itself out when tragedy strikes. Once something bad has happened to you, instinctually, you will be fearful that it might happen again. And so what it does is it moves me into a defensive posture where I then begin to put up walls, hold people at a distance because I don't want that thing ever to happen again. And if I can prevent it, even by cutting people out of my life and holding you at a distance, I will do so in order to not experience that thing. This is, folks, an opportunity 
for God to begin to shape you into the image of Jesus. I know you don't want, me to hear, or you don't want to hear me say that. First of all, what is fear? Let's talk about that, because this is a very misunderstood term in the New Testament as it stands. There's two words in the New Testament Greek that are often translated as fear, and they mean very different things. And so we got to make sure that we get the right one with the right meaning. The first word is the word phobeo. It's a word that we get our English word phobia from, like arachnophobia. Anyone remember that smash movie from the 90s? Never, ever have the same relationship with spiders again. Um, it's a word that means reverence or respect. It's a healthy kind of reluctance, and there are actually several times in the New Testament where we are commanded to have this kind of fear. So fear of God, for example, is something that the, both the New Testament and the Old Testament speak to. Uh, in fact, Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. You Which can't, is not cringing. No, it's, it's just healthy reluctance. Yeah. It's healthy. In fact, uh, in my class two weeks ago, uh, I think it was Bart Castle. Was Bart in here this morning? Or was he second service? Um, Bart mentioned electricity. I thought this was a great the illustration. The one Sunday, Mrs. Church, yeah, call him out. Call him out. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he mentioned electricity. That that fear uh, is 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 this kind of fear is greatly understood through electricity. That electricity has the power to do a lot of great things in my life. Light up a room, power my appliances. But I have to have a healthy reluctance with it. That if I get too close to it, it can end you. Don't stick no screwdrivers. Don't in stick no screwdrivers in anything with electricity. Now, I think that's actually a very helpful illustration for this word. This is not the kind of fear I'm talking about. Okay, there's another word in the uh, New Testament, delia, and it's a word that I suspect is at play here as a result of pain or tragedy in your life, and it's a word that means cowardice or timidity. It's used in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, where Paul says, for God gave us a spirit not of Fear, not of delia, not of cowardice or timidity, but of power and love and, here's that word, self-control. Sound mind. So God gives you a spirit of power and love and self-control, but not of timidity or cowardice. Now, what does this have to do with God's purpose for me in my life? Well, here's what it means. Part of growing and conformity to the image of Christ means having greater and greater faith having greater and greater ability to take God at his word, to trust him in all things. And that means, by definition, I am able to reject timidity and cowardice. I am able to, if I am able to trust God more, then I am operating less and less out of the fear that prevents me from trusting at all. When I operate out of fear, I believe that God is not protecting me in that moment. I believe that I am left on my own. I believe that God is going to throw me to the wolves. And so God will take these otherwise unredeemable moments in your life and even the feelings, the natural feelings that you have as a result of them and use them and give meaning to them by taking them and shaping you more and more into the image of his son, Can presenting him as blameless. Yeah, please. You know, you know the old snake handlers? Churches that would yep. bring out the rattlesnakes? Maybe some of you grew up there. Maybe that's why you left church for 30 years or whatever. You know, that is all based on a misunderstanding of these two words for fear. It is. Because delia means to have a healthy reverence for a snake that can F hurt fobeo. you. Fobeo. Fobeo yeah. does. I mean, fobeo, yes. yes. And the other is that cowardice or timidity. So they <laughs> say, well, my faith has to overcome my fear, not to overcome a healthy respect for a snake that can kill you. That's stupid to overcome that. But to overcome this complete 
Um, um, what am Cowardice, I looking for? Timidity. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a misapplication even of the kind of fear that our faith is supposed to overcome. It's not supposed to overcome that natural reverence for, right. that natural respect for. Right. And so just one a million illustrations of the way that words are used and misapplied in, in people's lives. You always have to look, well, what do you mean by that? What are you talking about by that? That is a, that is a great word. Yeah. There are things you That's absolutely... why we don't handle snakes. Exactly. Because we have a healthy reluctance for venomous snakes. Now, on the contrary, if, we, if you are a missionary sent into a part of the world where there is a, a large population of venomous snakes and God calls you to that mission field to do that, Come then, home. then no, <laughs> I, and then, and then you need to go and you need to follow God's word and you need to all the while have a healthy, healthy reluctance and a healthy boundary with those venomous snakes. Don't try picking up a cobra and say, well, I have faith. No, that's not faith. That's foolishness. Because the native people go, you have stupidity is what you have. You have, you have a snake, and what you need is a concordance so that you can learn the right word. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Are you getting this? Now, this is where I think this whole thing, I think, becomes very helpful in terms of Christian versus non-Christian worldview and perspective, okay? For the non-Christian, bad experiences, hurtful and painful experiences are just that. They are painful and hurtful experiences. They are the result of living in a fallen world where evil things happen, where we have an enemy that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, where any number of things that God certainly does not desire to happen to you will happen to you. And as a non-Christian, the best you can say is, well, that sucks. Um, sorry. You got, you got no hope on it. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing redeemable about it. There's no God in you to work it to good. No. It just is bad. And so, you know, Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, 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 meaningless, meaningless. That, that really is the worldview of the non-Christian when it comes to pain and hurt. But for the Christian, you have this measure of protection in your life that even when bad things, when God allows bad things, not causes, but allows bad things to happen, they will never ultimately thwart his purpose to conform you to the image of his son. And in fact, so often, more often than not, God is going to use those things to do some of his best conforming work in you. When we trust him. When you trust him. Yeah. And that's why I said that everything that happens to you, whether good or bad, has the potential to make you more like Christ. Now, you, there's potential that it doesn't. There's potential that you reject and that you keep pushing and you keep, and it's just going to keep setting you back. It doesn't mean that God's not going to love you or that you're going to lose your salvation or that you're going to fall away or any of the nonsense that James just covered. But that nonsense oh, that you covered, okay. not that you said. Okay. You know, you have to really clarify. Right, for, right. For hey, people. I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> but that God will use that. To carry out his purpose even further. And that's why we're protected in Christ because he has determined I will present you to myself blameless yeah. and without spot. Yeah. It isn't going to happen in this life. No. But it will happen in eternity. In eternity. Last but not least, we'll close here. And I just got one last little thing to say. We're protected by his person. Hmm. Uh, verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, before time existed, and now in the present, and forever in an unending future event, God will always be 
worthy of receiving glory and majesty and honor and dominion and power and so on and so forth. In other words, we are ultimately protected not by a thought, not by an idea, not by a, a vision, not by a philosophy, but by a living God, That's right. the person Christ Jesus, who is both God and Savior. People say, why can I trust God? Because of his character. Because who he is. Because of who he is. How can I know he won't lie? Because of his character. Because of who he is. How will I know that he will fulfill his purpose in me? Because, because of, of his, his character. character. Yeah. I'm protected by his character. Thank goodness he doesn't have my character. Praise God. Amen. Praise Hallelujah. God. Let me say I this. wouldn't trust him to throw me across the room. Let me, let me say this as a closing thought, because I, 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 I think this is just so masterful how the Holy Spirit worked through Jude to write this letter, that, you know, we, we started this series 10 weeks ago, and, and we based it heavily off of, of, of the beginning part of Jude, where he says that, that you are to contend for the faith once and for all handed down by the saints. And so we call this contentious Christianity, and, and we, we've really talked a lot about, in very practical ways, about how... You, as a Christ follower, with a distinctly biblical worldview, can rightfully contend against uh, error, against evil, against a whole host of non-biblical and even hostile to the faith concepts. And so the charge to you for nine weeks has been, you go out and contend for the faith that God has handed down. You go out and contend for the truth of God. And then we come here to week 10, this last part, and we get this beautiful reminder hmm. that as you are contending for the truth of God, God is contending for you. Mm -hmm. He's protecting. That when Paul says that, that if God is for us, who could be against us? It's a promise that, that we have that Jude is, is reminding of us of as well, that as you are in hostility, as you are in increasingly more difficult and challenging situations where you have to stand up for your faith, and maybe the cost of standing up for that faith is getting worse and worse and worse, and maybe right now it's just like you get removed from, uh, from your job, which is already in of itself pretty bad, but maybe one day your very life is at risk like many thousands if not millions of Christians before us have faced but you have the hope of knowing that at your most contentious state for the truth of God, you have the Alpha and the Omega contending for you. The almighty warrior going before you as he went before Israel and as he goes before the church, he will contend for you. And so you have nothing to fear. What a great, what a great encouragement to end this really Man. dark yeah. kind of book of Jude. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one thing to tell you to go out and fight, and hopefully you don't get killed. <laughs> it's another thing to say, go out and fight, and by the way, you have Yahweh at your side, you will contending survive. for you the whole way. Amen. So contend, 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 contend. Count your cost, and then go out and contend for the truth, because it will always be worth it and you will always have him contending for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just a really challenging and, and yet I, I believe very edifying series through this small and yet very powerful letter of Jude. We thank you for his witness. We thank you for, um, Lord, the truth that he was obedient to write down through your Holy Spirit. 
And I pray that, that um, we would not just end this series and, and kind of move on to the next thing, but that this would really be kind of a, a worldview-shaping moment for us individually and us as a church, that we would see the need for God's people to be a voice of reason and a voice of steadfast truth in an otherwise uh, shifting world, and, uh, and, and hopefully in such a way that makes a positive impact by uh, bringing the gospel to the lost and seeing them be born again. Lord, we, we thank you for the security we have in you. We thank you for the protection that we have, that even when we face hardship, that there is uh, redeemable qualities to those things, that you use those things to make us more like yourself, and that you contend for us and will one day present us as blameless before you for all of eternity. God, we love you. We thank you for that. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this body of believers who are committed to you and your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And in the 10 weeks that we've been studying Jude, we never one time got out early. You're getting out two minutes early. Look at that. Praise God. We can do it. Go fight win.